welcome to another edition of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today, we have as our guest someone that I consider to be something of surgical royalty. Dr. Jeff Matthews, who is the chair of surgery in the, in the University of Chicago, where he has held that position for some decades now, is one of the most prominent academic surgeons in the United States. He's also um, something of a Renaissance man being um, a guitarist, rock musician, composer, and performing artist. Um, I've no doubt that he will have lots of interest to say to us. I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say about balancing surgery and different aspects of life and what advice he might have to young aspiring surgeons. So without further ado, let's look forward to saying hello to Dr. Jeff Matthews. This is John Monson and another edition of Surgeons Lives. Thanks for joining. Sure. Happy to. Um, so, um, yeah, this is um, uh, uh, an opportunity for a range of different people, uh, some of which are um are just standard surgical folks if you like uh, some of whom are uh, a bit like yourself who have um uh, another side to their life um and um, um just to talk about um surgery but also the other aspects of their life um sure. as uh, people become more interested um in um, what makes people tick really um and um so it's um, pretty casual. Um, um, we are collecting a series of these interviews and um, I try not to edit them too much um, because I want people, you know, to be relaxed and conversational and jump back into it and in and out of it, etc. So um, what I sometimes ask people to do, some, uh, particularly um, somebody like you, is to start it off by um, giving us a little bit of a summary, starting with the words, I was born in. Sure. All right. Are we ready to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are ready to go. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, I was born uh, in um, uh, right outside of New York City uh, in a place called New Rochelle. Uh, and I uh, grew up there for the first couple of years of my life, then moved a little uh, bit north to a town called Scarsdale. Uh, which uh, uh, was home till you know all the way through uh, high school. It was, uh, you know, a, a, you know, pretty much a, a pretty standard uh, suburb of uh, New York City, uh, and uh, went to the public high school there. Um, did uh, sorts of the usual things that kids do in high school. I was a pretty good student. Yeah. Uh, had lots of interests and. Things in high school wasn't a, wasn't an athlete, but uh, had lots of uh, lots of outside interests. And then went to um, left uh, in 1977 to um, go to school in Boston at Harvard College, and I stayed there essentially for the next 24 years, except one year abroad. Uh, so I went to um, uh, undergraduate there, med school there, uh, did my residency at the uh, what was then called the the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, yeah. uh, 
uh, took one year in Switzerland to work with uh, Professor Les Blumgart in a, a biliary fellowship, the late, great Les Blumgart, who we dearly miss, passed away in September, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then stayed on faculty there for about uh, 10 years. I did the typical uh, surgeon scientist thing, um, got my lab going. Uh, we studied uh, fundamental uh, epithelial biology questions. Uh, we did a lot of uh, uh, epithelial ion transport. I was particularly interested in chloride ion transport and epithelial barrier function. We did a lot of really good, sophisticated studies. Were funded by the NIH for uh, for quite a long time. The entire time that I was in. Uh, Boston. Uh, in about 2001, exactly 2001, um, I was recruited to Cincinnati to be the chair at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and you, um, you replaced Joe, Joe Fisher? Fisher. Yeah, yeah. Joe Fisher, yeah. And uh, yeah, Joe Fisher was uh, there. Joe had uh, stepped away from his position at uh, Cincinnati uh, and ironically uh, ended up moving mm-hmm. back to uh, Harvard. At that point, Beth Israel had merged with the Deaconess yeah. Hospital and he became chair yeah. of Beth Israel Deaconess. People when, often- you were, um, when you were in Bern, uh, I mean, I first met Les Blumgart when I started my academic career in London and he was still in the Hammersmith mm-hmm. um, with, and his, you know, his um, handmaiden at the time was Eric Benjamin. Yeah. I know her. Sure. Became a very good friend. And then when you were in um, Bern, uh, were you there at the same time as Guy Madden? Uh, I can't, uh, we, we didn't overlap, but we know yeah. each other, uh, uh, you know, well now because uh, we, you know, we all have that uh, legacy sure. Bloomgard. So as we met each other uh, over the years, yeah. and I can't remember whether he was before or after me with Les, but yeah. he wasn't the year that I was there. And of course it's, um, you know, being a, uh, being a member of the Lem, the Les Blumgard Casualty Support Group, you know, is is um, is quite a is quite a large support group. <laughs> well, he was always very kind to me. I had a great year there. It was a lot of fun, um, and uh, it certainly, you know, you know, gave me a great uh, jump start uh, in you know what would become my specialty. I didn't end up doing liver surgery really because the yeah. practice. I fell into at the Beth Israel Hospital was more pancreatic and biliary than liver. I did a, a smattering of liver cases. Sure. But, um, they, I mean, to be fair, I first met Les actually at the bicentenary of the Irish College in wow. 1984, where he was, a, my boss was the organizer, um, and who was an HPB surgeon, and he organized for two famous HPB surgeons to speak. One was Les Blumgard, and one was John Terblanche. Sure, from South Africa. Yeah. Uh, what I what I did not know, but he knew because he knew them both, and did out of sheer mischief, was that they, I think it would be fair to say, were not close bu- bosom buddies. You know, well, both uh, South African. Like, exactly. Uh, one Blumgard started as a he was a patrician. He was, you know, um, Bloomgard started as a dentist. In South exactly. Africa. So right. um, as Paddy said to me at the time, he said, you know, we have a tall um, blonde Afrikaner and a small fat Jewish dentist here. He said, of course they don't get on. <laughs> but, you know, Bloomgard was uh, was a showman. He was very yeah. um, he was always exciting to be around. He was always interesting, had a story for everything. And he did amazing things. Oh, uh, true. He had, I mean, he had that passion. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, that kind. So to this point, you were following, um, albeit a successful one, um, a fairly classical academic career um, yes. with, um, you know, this ticking the boxes as you go. Yes. Um, did you have, you know, would you have described yourself as, you know, did you have the white heat of ambition or, or you know, what, yeah, was, uh, the, what was the aim? Yeah, I, you know, I guess I had um, ambition um, that was sort of ill-formed. I just thought, you know, I want, I worked hard. I liked, you know, I'd like to work hard. Um, I, I liked to write. Um, I loved being in the lab. I liked operating. And I liked um, being part of the academic world. I have to say that in, because it, the, my boss, uh, Bill Silent, who was a great academic uh, surgeon and a great scientist, was not much for surgical meetings. He was more connected into the world of basic science and 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 digestive diseases broadly writ. Uh, and uh, so I got uh, connected into that broader community. And for you know all the time, certainly that I was in Boston, spent as much time at cell biology and physiology meetings, large conferences and small conferences as anything. Uh, and so was really, um, really inspired to be around really smart people. And, uh, you know, that sort of, you know, I guess paralleled my ambition to, you know, to do well. And to, in my mind, you know, doing well was to be what Bill Silen were or, or, or Les Bloomgar was. And I was not um, I think I was a, a, a. I think I still am an excellent clinical surgeon. I was a very busy clinical surgeon in the first part of uh, my career with a broad uh, general and gastrointestinal surgery practice. But I didn't have the same um, single-minded focus on uh, on surgery the way somebody like Les Bloomgard uh, was. I was more yeah. the, the type like Bill Silent, who really loves the lab as well as a more focused. Uh, clinical practice, and so that's the path that I that I took. And so my you always, always want to be a chair. Yeah, I wanted to because I, I didn't know any better. I thought yeah, that's what yeah. you did. Um, I, I was I was you know I, I was young at every stage of the of the career. I didn't take any time off, so I was just sort of putting one foot in front of the other and doing the next thing and doing well at it. So I went on to you know whatever the next step was, and and it wasn't. Um, uh, really, um, it, it was intentional in the sense that I was driven to do great things, but it wasn't like these are the steps I have to do to become a chair. Yeah. It just wasn't that that calculating because I didn't really understand it anyway. So, yeah, and you know, I followed the same path. You know, you, because it was easier to follow that path. You knew what the steps were. You know, you yeah, did exactly. So right. you know, these days it's interesting because I talk to a lot of our trainees. Um, there, there's, there's. It's such there's so many more options that you can learn about as a young trainee or young faculty member than were obvious to someone back in our day. Yeah. You know, so I met I was with Bloomgar. You you met him in '84. I was with him in '88. So right. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then Chicago. Yeah. So five years in Cincinnati. When I went to uh, Cincinnati in 2001. Uh, I think I was the youngest chair in the country of close to it. If I, if not, I think I was the youngest chair. And when I left Cincinnati five years later, I think I was still the youngest chair. Uh, so it was a very, I was a chair there from age 42 to 47 uh, and got um, 
you know, it's a fabulous place at uh, University of Cincinnati. I know you visited and uh, been there before, and and it was a, a a great department. Still is a great department. I had, I had great years there. Uh, but then uh, University of Chicago came calling, and it was uh, exciting for me. First of all, because I'm I think I'm more of a big city person in general. Yeah. Probably is things that we'll talk about. Uh, you know, I just I, I sort of like uh, you know the arts and the and the the pulse and the the hustle and bustle of a big city. Um, I just sort of thrive off of that. And um, uh, the dean at the time was a former research mentor uh, of mine from Boston. Uh, so uh, he reached out to see if I would be interested after Bruce Gewirtz stepped away. Uh, and uh, Bruce went off to uh, be the chair at uh, Cedar sinai uh, and the role became available at University of Chicago, and it was great. So I've been there since 2006. So it's interesting, um, you know, when I took my first faculty job at Imperial College in London in 1990, I, I was asked to give a presentation on uh, the future of academic surgery. And, um, you know, at that time, 1990, so some decades ago, um, the general mantra was that academic surgery is dying. Um, and um, I always remember that one of the papers that I found on this topic that told me people have been talking about it for some decades before then um, was by George Block, one of your predecessors um, in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and um, it, was, um, it was centered around the concept as the sky is falling. Um, yeah. But so I tell my residents, and I, they they know this because we talk about this all the time. I said my, the sky's been falling my entire career, yeah. uh, and uh, you know somehow uh, we move forward, and academic surgery is still a great career. Uh, it's still you know exciting field to be in. There's lots of cool things that are happening. Uh, what it means to be an academic surgeon has broadened and uh, um, changed and morphed over the times. But you know with you know 30 years before you and I trained, uh, people were saying the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you go back to Franny Moore's SUS presidential address when he talked about the perils of a surgeon scientist. Yeah. And you read it today, uh, now 63, four years later, um, it completely resonates, the same issues and nothing's changed in that regard. You know, everything's changed, but nothing's changed. Well, that was gonna be my question to you. You know, uh, you know the, the challenges and thoughts and fears and worries have not changed, but of course, everything has dramatically changed. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure neither of us gave it a moment's thought about pursuing a career in academic surgery. It's, it was your passion, your love, and same with me, etc. Um, do you think it's just as easy for young surgeons coming out today to have that passion? And what's changed? Um, you know, how is it different now? Yeah, I think that um, a, a, a lot of things have changed and a lot of things haven't. I will say that when I look at our, um, uh, I call them junior, you know, junior faculty, for lack of a better word, but people within their first few years, um, you know, they're every bit as passionate about surgery in the field as I was. I don't see any real difference in there. I, I see the, the, the difference uh, in the in, in the passion is is not there, but I think the climate that they work in, yeah. in many respects, is more um, uh, benign than it was when we trained, but also more difficult um, to go deep and be successful in traditional ways. 
Um, I think, you know, it is very hard uh, without extensive scientific training uh, to be a um, successful independent surgeon scientist running your own NIH say funded lab. It, we have surgeons in my department who are doing it. I've got a vascular surgeon who's two years out and is already writing a second R01. He's been on the faculty for two years. He got the first R01, the first try. Um, and so th there are people with incredible training who are able to do it, but you can't be an amateur at it. And I think no. our day, um, it was some amateurs snuck by uh, and were able to get funded. Uh, and, you know, 20 years before that, there were a lot of amateurs uh, doing it. And I think science has changed. It's more team science. The nature of, you know, fundamental research has, you know, gotten more complicated. So I think it's unrealistic to imagine that. But if you look at the, the value that a smart surgeon brings to a research team, um, it's incredible these days what what they can do uh, yeah. and be part of. Uh, but you know the idea that the only pathway to success is to be an independent surgeon scientist with a basic science lab to be an insurance is just not true anymore. No, I, I I agree with that. And you know, and by the way, the interesting stuff is all in health services. Research. Well, and that's what I was going to say. And the work that our young surgeons and across the country are doing in health services research and implementation science and other areas. Yeah remarkable and their interest in advocacy and eliminating disparities and those it, it, their passion is as deep as ours was uh, about understanding you know the colonic epithelial cells you know it's changed one of the things that struck me in the in the uh, late 90s in the uk when i was a chair in the uk was that it, it suddenly struck me that um increasingly certainly in the uk and the nhs the government, who were, of course, the source of funding for research, um, you know, the, polit the political masters really didn't care about the genome. Um, what they cared about is getting elected, of course. Right. And in terms of research, electoral viability translates into health services research and care delivery. And it opened up a whole, you know, as they were pouring all the funding, the molecular funding for what my former colleague Dean used to call the DNA navigators, you know, they were pouring those into fewer, fewer baskets in Oxford and Cambridge and Imperial, et cetera, um, and not spreading it. But, you know, where you didn't need that enormous critical mass of scientists and, and equipment and facilities and vivariums and things like that, you know, that was health services research. They, the politicians began to realize that there was bigger bang for your buck there. Um, yeah, and I, I think though the 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 thing that is changed when you and I were coming up, uh, there was uh, I would say it's fair to say disdain for what people would call these you know outcomes research mm -hmm. and writing a series of patients, and the the methodologic rigor that's been brought to health services yeah. sciences uh, now versus thirty years ago is extraordinary, yeah. and so we it is very common for our trainees or our uh, new faculty to get advanced degrees in health services research and bioinformatics and other areas where they're able to make really pretty, you know, to, to do pretty powerful work. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Very impactful uh, work. And so I think the, the intellectual rigor um, is, is there. Um, in our day, there were, you know, you'd go to the surgical forum and there may be five great papers, you know, presented. 
uh, and there would be you know 300 mediocre papers presented. Um, and these days, I think it's the same for health services research. The people who are doing it well are doing it really well. I think the other issue is that, you know, by almost by definition, as you're at the cutting edge of, you know, molecular basic sciences, you know, on our, our side of the Atlantic, we were always, you had to write a doctoral thesis, you know, to, to demonstrate that you'd succeeded. And all, it was almost by definition, by the time you finished your thesis, it was out of date. Right. Um, because molecular sciences move so quickly. I wrote my doctoral thesis on interleukin-2 and lac cells, and, you know, it, it disappeared. There's a certain greater shelf life to some aspects of implementation science and um, health services research. You know, back pain is back pain and the way people think, you know? But I think the pace uh, uh, of the of the work is slower. You know, the oh, yeah. field work that's involved and, in you know, can move much, much slower. And, you know, that's, that's certainly true for clinical trials. And, and uh, so, um, so when did you first pick up a guitar? Uh, I first picked up a guitar, I think, when I was 11 or 12. Um, I, uh, family I, musicians? Or no, not? no, not at all. Um, no, no family musicians. Um, well, I mean, that's not actually true. I had a, uh, a great aunt uh, who was a singer, um, but uh, basically <laughs> not. Um, uh, certainly not my parents and not my kids. But I grew up listening to rock and roll, and and yeah. I, reason I I think back about this a lot. You know, what was it about it that uh, that got me excited? When, you know, when I was six or seven years old and listening to Rolling Stones records or the Young Rascals or Herman's Hermits and you know this sort of stuff. Uh, what was and, your first? Uh, what was the first single you bought? Uh, the first single I probably, I don't remember exactly, but I think the first single I had was Come On Up by the Rascals, the Young Rascals. Um, I also remember having, um, um, you know, I get it, got albums early on. I know what yeah. my first album was. It was uh, a High Tides and Green Grass Rolling Stones compilation, which was probably 65, 66, whenever that, whenever the greatest hits record was. Yeah, uh, I don't remember what the first album I bought. I know the first single I bought was Hard Day's Night. Yeah. So I probably, uh, yeah, so probably probably about 65, 66 is when yeah. I started listening hard. But I didn't pick up an instrument until I was at summer camp. Uh, and maybe I was 11, I would say, probably 1970, I would say. Um, I um, sprained my finger playing basketball. And so I couldn't do any of the contact sports. I was at a sports camp and uh, couldn't do the contact sports for a few weeks. So I had a lot of time just sitting in the bunk by myself. Uh, and my counselor played guitar and he had a Crosby, Stills and Nash songbook, which had pictures of, I mean, this is pre-YouTube, yeah. right? <laughs> so yeah, the only, yeah. you, know, you can go on YouTube and learn how to play guitar. I saw the pictures of what the chords were supposed to look like. He showed me a couple of chords and I would, I knew the songs and I would sit there and practice the, you know, the songs. And uh, so I learned how to play guitar. And then, you know, when I went back and when I was in, you know, maybe sixth and seventh uh, grades or, you know, 12, 13 years old, I started playing in bands, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, took off from there. But you must have, um, I mean, it, it goes by, it goes without saying, it goes with the territory that um, somewhere, somewhere in there came the 10,000 hours. Well, so let's, I mean, for, let's reality check. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm an okay guitar player. 
um, I think I'm a really good songwriter. Uh, I will say that, that I'm, 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 uh, I, I, I hear things and I like to, I like to write songs and I, now I have the ability to get into a recording studio and, and work with some great musicians and make it come out, you know, the way I hear in my head. And, and that's really kind of fun for me. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't love to play live. I played in bands for a long time. I played a band in bands in college, um, and did that, but I prefer, uh, you know, the studio. I mean, like the Beatles when they stopped touring, you know, I, you know, yeah. I find the studio a fascinating place to be. Uh, and you know, just sort of why? My, my ability I mean, what is? It? I mean, is it? Um, do you freak out playing live, or is it just the uh, imprecision, or what? Because I, I I like things to be perfect. Um, yeah. You know, I like it to I like it to come out the way I I, I want it to come out, the way it is in my head. Um, and I, don't get me wrong, I, wrong. I like playing music with other people. Yeah. But I don't get I don't get. Um, and, and I've done that, um, but I don't get jazzed by being up on stage, uh, particularly. Sure, that, sure. It's not it, it's not necessarily something that I that I seek, um, it, you know. So I don't mind doing it, um, and it, you know. So, but I, you know, I also think I think in the studio you can make things come out as you want it. It can sound that you can make your guitar sound exactly like you want it. Uh, you can, um, you know, add whatever instruments you want. You have the joys of multi-tracking and, yeah. and you know, yeah. pro tools where, you know, I mean, the last, this record that I'm working on right now, uh, is actually uh, some of my team is in New York right now as we speak, uh, doing some preliminary mixing of it. I mean, you know, there's, you know, 120 tracks on it, you know, that we, you know, when we just get the stuff that we like and we pull it back together and assemble yeah. it. You know, I'm sure you watch the, um, I, I... I'm totally blanking what it was called, but the, the um, compilation footage of the Beatles in the uh, studio that was on yeah, Disney. The, the Let It Be. Uh, yes, exactly. It. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I. Get Back, it was called. Yeah. 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 I, I watched that, you know, literally start to finish. And, um, you know, a couple of things struck me about it, you know, as a lifelong Beatles fan. One was the despite what was going on in their lives at the time, but one was the fact that they clearly had a great love for each other. Um, and the other really was um, just a searing talent that, um, you know, you, you listen to the albums and you think, oh, that was okay. It's a fairly simple song, you know, etc." But the effort and the, and the sophistication that they put into it, which was not about the enormous technical sophistication that's available today. You know, you can, I often, you know, certainly the people that are into, you know, electronic music, you, you just wonder what that creative process is, but you could see with um, with any, all four of them, you know, that it was, um, you know, that they didn't need equipment to produce magic. Um, and I, that's that's a, that's a joy to watch. I, I, I agree with you completely, John. I would say, uh, let me add two um, nuances to that. Um, number one, it, it, that what I found amazing about Get Back was watching the creative process unfold. You watch where how a song began mm -hmm. and then how it how it turned into something, especially, you know, that moment where, you know, Paul comes up with the riff for, you know, Get Back and basically writes it on the spot. Um, but you also see... Um, 
how they have input into each other's songs. And the one yeah. who always amazes me, who doesn't get the credit, is Ringo Starr. Yeah. Yeah. The way he could create an iconic drum track, uh, you know, drum thing that would complement the song, but didn't need to be flashy, but but pulled something out of the song that wasn't necessarily there before he got involved. And that that creative process in the studio is incredible. Number two is just because something is simple um, doesn't mean that it isn't complex to get down exactly as you want it and capture the energy and the magic yeah. um, actually on a record. Uh, and that second process of taking something, I mean, you know, the songs that I write are, you know, I think they're good. Uh, I, I, um, but they aren't symphonies. Um, they aren't, you know, they, they're, they're, you know, they're rock songs. Um, and, and they're nothing about them is particularly complicated, but working through the instrumentation and the dynamics and exactly how it's going to sound, yeah. uh, and, you know, exactly what the lyrics are and how the background books, you have infinite possibilities and then you start to put it together and it becomes a thing. And that magic is incredible. Um, and it's hard to describe unless you sort of see the process. It's like a, a whipples. Yeah. Well, except in a whipple procedure, it's complicated, but you know what it's supposed to look like before you start. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and the different thing is here is like making up a new, not knowing what operation you're going to do and figuring out as you go along what operation is going to happen. So, I think so. I mean, um, you know, there is an improvisation process. element to surgery. We all know yeah. that. You have to sort of know what you're supposed to do, and then you have to see what you actually get when you get in there. So there is definitely improvisation. Yeah, I had a boss who, was, who would have been classically, or nowadays, described as... Um, consciously competent as in he knew he was not naturally gifted but so he had to work at it and his great mantra was all big operations are made up of lots of little operations put together and uh, you know he was a very good teacher because of that because you know he he would say to people all the time don't don't get flustered or panicked here you know you've done every one of these You've tied off a vessel, you've sutured off a vessel, you've done this and that. You know, you put them all together, and before you know where you are, you'll be at the end of the operation. Basic philosophy. So, you know, and I, it, it's a bit like, you know, I, as I say, when you were watching that program, they let it uh, get back, um, you, you know, you heard a little, you know, 20 seconds of a song, and you went, okay, that's done. But it wasn't anywhere near done, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of work, you know, you saw what, uh, the, what the studio engineers, uh, you know, did, what George Martin did. Um, and all of that process is fascinating, too, because yeah. the amount of control that you have. So when you're mixing it and you decide, um, you know, uh, the, you know, are the guitars going to be split right and left? And where's the vocals? And how's that, pan you know, panning? And, and is this a little bit louder than that? You know, you can go and listen to all the different releases of the Beatles catalog, since we're talking about the Beatles catalog, and listen to the difference in the mono mix and the stereo mixes and all the various remixes that, and they are, it's the same song, but it's a different listening experience. Yeah, yeah. You notice different things uh, because one's a little bit louder, one's a little bit more separated. So your ear hears it and experiences it in a different way. And if you're into that kind of thing, those nuances are remarkable. Mm. 
So I, I interviewed as part of this series uh, an old friend of mine, um, Carl, a guy called Carl Byrne, who is a bariatric surgeon in MUSC. Carl and I were residents together in 1982 in Dublin. So I've known him. Now, he's a, he's a musician and has been forever. And Carl has a, an illicit habit of buying guitars. Um, and he, has, um, he sent me pictures of them all um etc and so he has you know he's somewhere in the region of, it, it, we're not talking obscene numbers here but you know he's got something like 30 40 guitars um etc his favorite one if he had to um live with one is um an acoustic guitar the same model that paul simon plays um etc which he bought at an estate sale uh, you know i I collect old cars and you get a lot more guitars than you do for her car. So do you, are you a collector? Yeah, I am. It depends upon how deep you want to go uh, in, you know, there are certainly uh, guitars that you can spend 500. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really want to do the collecting things, but I would say I have about 30 guitars too. Um, it, you know, the number comes and goes uh, probably 30, 34 uh, guitars, um, including some bass guitars that my wife uh, uh, plays. But um, I, I have um, my collecting habits are a, a little bit um, all over the place. Um, I, I like to get um, um, guitars that I enjoy playing. I like to get guitars that are representations of a certain kind of a classic type of guitar. But I often find that that the guitars that have the most meaning to me are are a guitar that I that I'm connected with somebody uh, over. So, for example, uh, you know, and it's uh, uh, sadly uh, timely, but Jeff Beck, uh, yeah. who was our hero of mine, uh, is uh, you know I took care of as a patient about ten years ago, uh, um, uh, eight or ten years ago, um, and he was a lovely guy and all that. And and uh, as you know, gratitude. You know, he happened to be coming through town, and I knew. Uh, one of the people who was on tour with him and they called me up and asked me if I'd see him uh, and to pay me back, he gave me his guitar. So I had, yeah, I, I saw, I saw it on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, that was a fun story, you know, so that's like got incredible meaning. Uh, another example uh, would be a uh, number of years ago, maybe uh, 12, 15 years ago. Um, I uh, met and became uh, friends with a guy named Mick Ralphs, who was a guitar player for Mott the Hoople okay. and later Bad Company. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, he was one of my favorite guitar players. And I, I met him at, 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 at a, uh, you know, an event and we became friends. And uh, he had a lot of guitars and I bought a couple of off him. He, he was in tax trouble at the time. <laughs> uh, I bought a couple of his guitars. So I, you know, I just, how do you not have those as a prized possession when you own guitars that Mick Ralphs took out on, on tour? Um, so when you, when you were looking at the job in Chicago, I mean, it is the ultimate or one of the ultimate music cities. Was that a factor in you deciding? Uh, not really. I mean, it was like, it wasn't a factor, but it was a, it was a benefit. Um, you know, um, it, it, you say one of the music cities, you know, I'm from New York City, so or so, suburbs of New York City, so New York is pretty great. And I spent 24 years in Boston, and Boston is an incredible music town, and it certainly was when I, during the years that I was there uh, with real iconic bands. But, you know, having a very vibrant music scene and being a hub was meaningful uh, to, to me 
so I, you know, I like that. And I, you know, I, I, I think uh, I enjoy uh, being the oldest person at Lollapalooza every year. You know, <laughs> I still love to go to the festivals and I love to check out obscure bands and, and, uh, you know, go out to the clubs uh, when I, when I can. And, you know, so, you know, we've been talking about, you know, two aspects of your life and, um, you know, you and I, unfortunately, both know numerous surgeons, sometimes famous surgeons, you know, who really didn't have a life outside surgery. And I've always taken the view that I, I, I've sensed um, a degree of struggle and sadness when their surgical career came to a, came to an end. And indeed, their surgical career often came to an end, quite sadly, I sometimes thought, you know, because, because they didn't, um, you know, they there was um, a death-like grip on staying on, et cetera. You have a, um, a, a faculty of several score. Um, um, you know, was, in your day, in my day, when we were, as one of my faculty years ago said to me, you know, you used to be up and coming. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you have a bunch of young and up and coming. Do you now, as a chairman, view it as part of your life a role to ensure that people do have a life balance uh, i you know it's something that i realized very early on when i started to become chair um that um what i didn't want to be was one of those singular people that that you that you spoke of uh, because that wasn't who i was when i went into medicine uh, you know we talked about music but i also love to read widely you know I, I love history I love uh, I love novels I love poetry I love the fine arts uh, and so many things that are that are other interests and I couldn't see ever leaving those yeah. uh, so I always tried to maintain you know a degree of interest in it and then I realized along the way um, that uh, a, a lot of the problems in the field of surgery uh, came from role modeling the wrong people uh, whether it was the people who behaved badly in the ORs and who got their way and were, you know, you know, or were prima donnas or all that, and and if if they were viewed as the model of success, the junior faculty emulated that. So I thought it was important um, to be, you know, well, for lack of a better word, I guess, true to myself, to be authentic. And now that's a big word, uh, these authentic leadership. Uh, and but we talk a lot in a lot in my department about authenticity. Uh, I, I think it's important to role model that, whether it's in your personal relationships, uh, you know, um, what's going on in your life, uh, you know, your family, uh, who you love and all the, you know, uh, that as well as your your hobbies and, and things that you do outside that keep you whole as, as a, and bringing a little bit of that to work is kind of fun too. So I really encourage our faculty and I think, you know, it goes you know, to the, you know, the buzzword of inclusion, but I think it's real. Uh, when, when, when leaders in departments are authentic um, and vulnerable, people um, are um, more willing to bring their real selves to work. You get a more yeah. diverse workforce. You get more interesting people to be around. And I think sure. your patients get more interesting people to take care of them. And I, I think it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. Uh, that happens yeah and you know surgeons perish the thought um you know for some you know they're not renowned for being that interesting as people um yeah. you know they they're often very good at 
you know, one thing, but they're not often not multi-talented. But I tell you, uh, the there are more exceptions than you and I can count. Oh, yeah. yeah. In other words, and that's what I've found. One of the things that's been so fun about an academic surgical career is all of the people that we encounter, you know, you, you, you know, you included, you know, who we bump into and be and strike up friendships with over the years who are really interesting people <laughs> and, and have a side of them. And maybe that's the motivation of, uh, of sure. what you're doing yeah. here with your, uh, with, with your, with, with your show here. But uh, I, I think that there is a, um, um, uh, there is a lot of that out there. There are surgeons who are magicians and yeah. and woodworkers and gourmet chefs and you know race car drivers and car collectors, and they're so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And the more that we can encourage people, they keep those uh, elements of their lives um, as part of their professional lives. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent, you know, in previous eras. I'm sure those interests were there. They were just not considered a topic of conversation. Correct. Or they were done in such a narrow mm-hmm. way. And, and you know, now I think, you know, it's good to be able to go yeah. home early in the afternoon if you can. And, and you don't have to be there all the time, particularly yeah. in the pandemic world. I think- so you've been, you've been at this game, shall we say, for some time now. Yes. Uh, and... Um, uh, a couple of questions um, that I ask people. So uh, I suspect over that period of time, over the decades that you've been doing this, this might have changed. But um, you know, how would you like to be remembered? And, and how do you think you will be remembered? And has that changed over the years? Yeah, I, I thought when I was starting out that I would do great science and people yeah. would remember me for being a surgeon who did outstanding basic investigation, took good care of patients, and brought you know a, a, you know real um, interesting advances in fundamental science related to surgical disease. I don't think anybody should remember me that way, uh, and I don't want that to be my legacy. And although I'm proud of the work that I did, and I'm really proud when we have um, uh, surgeons who who follow that path and do great discovery work. For me, I, I think the the legacy is is that I that I keep things in balance, uh, and and that that the tripartite mission, uh, in a modern sense, uh, can uh, uh, be executed in a department of surgery with with um, uh, uh, interesting and diverse uh, uh, faculty trainees staff. Uh, who uh, all come together around a common mission. I want to be, uh, re- you know, remembered as somebody who put a stake in the ground and said we can be ourselves uh, at at work and we can be interesting, and that's going to make us better surgeons. Uh, and and because we bring a compassion and a commitment to our our work uh, that is different than the single-minded um, uh, approaches of the past that lost. Uh, too much humanity uh, around them, and so lost the context of the work that they're doing. Uh, you know, I want to be somebody who's remembered to, as supporting advocacy uh, and activism among surgeons, getting them outside of the department to address surgical disease in a broader societal sense. You know, the South Side of Chicago, we deal a lot yeah. with poverty, uh, with uh, unemployment, ho- you know, hopelessness, sure. violence, uh, racism. 
and those are public health hazards that matter. So I, I want people to to feel that I put a stake in the ground that we were going to go after these issues. Um, when are you going to retire and, and why? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know when I'm going to retire. I, I love doing what I'm doing. Um, I, I am attuned to the idea uh, that uh, at some point somebody else needs to be doing it. Um, I don't think I'll ever leave academic surgery completely. I'd like to keep a hand uh, in the field, you know, long after I stop operating um, by being a, you know, a coach uh, or by being an advisor uh, in, in some kind of uh, way, long after I'm not operating and, and, and not doing academic work. I'd like to keep my fingers in it because I enjoy the people and I enjoy the environment of a surgical department. Are you a fan of, you know, a lot of societies have mandatory retirement versus the um, Michael DeBakey option. Yeah. Where do you sit? Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a very thorny issue and one mm -hmm. that's hotly debated. My personal philosophy is that all surgeons over the age 60 should start to take a voluntary neuro, neurocognitive test um, that has um, no consequences to it, but just informs them about how they perform on it, and uh, you know that that can see their own curve yeah. uh, on it. And uh, I think the biggest problem that we see is when uh, surgeons are um, haven't recognized the decline in themselves. Yeah. Um, you know yeah. that's not going to be an issue for me because I will stop operating well before that time happens. Uh, I'm not going to wait for the de decline to happen because we have a lot of great surgeons in our department who've come along and do the cases as well as I can do them. The administrative roles and the leadership roles, you know, that's up to, a, you know, we have a new dean at our institution who I really like, uh, but uh, it's the, you know, the dean's um, job to decide when it's time to refresh the department. Exactly. And it is, of course, a legal requirement for you to say on a YouTube or a podcast that you really like the dean. It's just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I will I will say that, but I I truly I think it's you know, very uh, you know it's it's I've had a lot of deans of being a chair for twenty two years. This is my seventh or eighth dean, um, and it's very refreshing when a new dean comes in because there's a burst of energy and a burst yeah. of focus and. Uh, um, uh, you know, a little bit of a change of direction, which is nice. So um, uh, in the last few minutes, just that we have a couple of sort of um, uh, standard snappy questions. Um, so over your career, you've seen uh, what, what's changed in surgery for the best and what's changed for the worst? Uh, what's changed for the best? I think we um, are uh, really good uh, are better uh, at uh, paying attention to um, uh, the, 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 the things that matter to get patients through complex operations. Uh, I think critical care and our ability to salvage very difficult situations and yeah. make them routine has dramatically changed. I yeah. mean, when we were coming up, a Whipple was still an incredibly big yeah. deal. Now it's incredibly ho-hum um, and it is amazing how sick patients can get through really complex operations these yeah. days. That's I the famous that's article by Michael Trader, um, where he likened it to um, climbing Mount Everest, you know, and now it's 10 at a time. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's been an amazing change over the- over and the, the worst? Life. 
Uh, I think it's what, what my old boss used to call the diaspora of responsibility. Uh, the uh, the fragmentation of care and the lack of, of, of there's somebody being the designated captain who's, who's looking at, at everything. I think there's a lot of uh, excessive consultation and a lot of uh, um, uh, dispersion of, of uh, the essence of care. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, who's in charge, you know, who's in charge here. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's, it's difficult. Everybody wants to do the right thing, but I think there's, uh, there's tunnel vision where people yeah. focus on their organ or their field uh, and, and they miss the larger picture about what's going on. I think we're doing worse at that than we used so to. So I, I, you know, you'd be disappointed if I didn't ask you the series of, you know, cheesy questions that people ask um, that have, um, multiple choices only two answers to each they're not absolutely correct or incorrect other than the fact that i know what the correct answer is <laughs> okay um, and um so i'll uh, in closing i'm going to ask you these and you only get seconds to answer them okay, okay. so coke or pepsi coke cats or dogs dogs mcdonald's or burger king neither Yankees or Mets? Yankees. And Beatles or Stones? Beatles. And uh, Ford or Chevy? Um, uh, well, I, I haven't owned an American car in a long time. I'll say Ford. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to leave us with some, um, um, some sage words? Um, I described you in an introduction as um, surgical royalty. Um, <laughs> That's very fun. Well, it's a term stolen from uh, Jay Leno, actually. Anytime he has something like a Ferrari or something in the garage, he says it's um, automotive royalty. But, you know, you're uh, you're certainly uh, one of the best known figures in academic surgery and surgery in general. So you must have a sign off line for us. Uh, yeah, I, you know, my sign off line is, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, quick and witty enough to pull one off out of the air, but I, I would say that, um, knowing yourself, uh, and, and realizing that you can live a full life as an academic surgeon, uh, is really important. Uh, that's, uh, um, you know, bringing your authentic self to work, being authentic, uh, matters to your patients and it matters to your colleagues. Uh, and it's a different era uh, in, in that respect. Uh, I just came back from Academic Surgical Congress, uh, mm -hmm. the merged you know, SUS and AAS. Yeah. And, and I just get so excited uh, by the energy of that meeting year after year uh, and how the, the future looks really bright. Um, I guess I would say the sky has always been falling. Don't worry about it. Um, academic surgery is still the best career there is. And you'd do it all again? Absolutely, hundred percent. Unless I was, unless I could be a real rock star, and you know, actually, actually hit it big, but uh, that didn't. Uh, a little touch of regret there. A little touch of regret there. But uh, <laughs> all right, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for um, being so generous with your time. Um, we'll let you know when we're going to go live with these when they go out onto YouTube and the podcast. But in the meantime, I really appreciate it, and it's been yeah, great. Thanks, John. It's always great to see you. Great to chat with you. Take care. Thank you.